Hey guys, Podcast for Cultural Reformation is back again with special emphasis today on the cultural element, but also with special emphasis on the Reformation element, and I, I guess it can't be a podcast without emphasizing the podcast element. So, okay, each word of the Podcast for Cultural Reformation is as important as all the others. Uh, so there we are. Good. We're brought to you by the Ezra Institute for Contemporary Christianity, and we also travel on the Rebel Alliance Media Network, and I recommend both of those outlets to you for thought-provoking and trustworthy resources to help you engage culture from a biblical perspective. Visit EzraInstitute.ca and RebelAllianceMedia.com, and there you'll find articles, videos, podcasts for every occasion and every audience, uh, including your kids. Nobody's left out here. The Van Brimmer family does a Systematics for Saplings podcasts, and uh, that's that's been a real blessing uh, to us, uh, to my family. The show, shows are dropping almost every day of the week. Do yourselves a favor. Avail yourself of those resources. I promise that it will be the aroma of life to you. This episode, we've got Joe Boot and Andrew Sandlin here, and they sit down to talk about one of the subjects of their shared interest and concern, and something that should be a concern for all Christians, and that's Marxism, and its updated variant, cultural Marxism. And the philosophy of Marxism has largely been contained within academia, but the ideology of cultural Marxism has worked its way through Western culture to become part of the mainstream of thinking for unbelievers as well as for a lot of Christians. And this is why we should be aware of it and be on guard against it. Marxism is a pale imitation of Christianity uh, with a utopian vision for society, and we can do better. We have something better. What we need to bring against this fake and destructive worldview is the recovery of the full scope of the gospel of Jesus and a strong Christian worldview that takes every thought captive to the word of God. Welcome to the uh, Ezra Institute and uh, another Cornerstones episode. We're here in the library uh, at uh, the Centre for Reformational Culture. And my guest uh, this week is uh, Dr. Andrew Sandlin of the Centre for Cultural Leadership in uh, Southern California. Or is it uh, Northern California? It's actually Northern California and there is a big difference. So don't make that mistake again. And uh, Andrew is a uh, fellow of the Ezra Institute as well. We tried to stop him, but he insisted. So uh, he, uh, we're, we're very blessed to have him here. He's been here speaking with us this week, for us this week at the Worldview Leadership League. So we thought we'd take the opportunity to sit down with Andrew and talk a little bit about one of his uh, critical subjects, really, that he uh, speaks on often and has really developed uh, uh, quite a remarkable expertise in discussing the implications of Marxism, in particular uh, the way in which uh, Marxism has morphed and shifted in our own time uh, and is influencing almost every aspect of cultural life in the West today. So, Andrew, thank you for being here. We're delighted to have you. Thanks for coming to um, speak with us and to us this week. It's a privilege to work with the Ezra Institute and you, my dear friend. You're doing remarkable work, and I just can't wait to see all the things that God will use the Institute to do in the future. So, um, yes, Marxism has had a, um, in whatever form, has had a profound impact, certainly on the 20, uh, 20th century. In fact, I think it's probably safe to say that no single philosophy uh, has impacted more people uh, in, the, in the 20th century uh, than Marxism. You think about the many, many millions in the Soviet Union, China, Eastern Europe, Cuba, Southeast Asia, and so on. Do you want to uh, um, start, Andrew, then, by uh, defining sort of original Marxism for us? Maybe even uh, as we think about that, just tell us a little bit about some of the key influences on Marx himself um, as he came to formulate his economic theory, his uh, theory of um, history as well. Um, I'm thinking of you know, people like Hegel and and, and Darwin and so on, and just help our, our, our listeners understand a little bit first about um, Marx himself and his influences and what he was really trying to say. Yeah, he was, uh, I'm glad you mentioned Hegel. He and Marx and his little group at the time um, in the uh, early 19th century were called the Young Hegelians. 
And so they were wrestling with Hegel's thought. And I won't take time to go into it in detail, but some people believe that Hegel was actually the last great uh, philosopher that set forth a huge, massive mega-philosophy. Um, he had a number of ideas. One of his main ones was sort of the, the world spirit, that as it were, the, the universe itself had, had almost a consciousness and it was moving in a particular direction. And Hegel believed that the state could and should harness that. Um, Marx uh, said that explicitly, he turned Hegel on his head in one way. Hegel held the view that, uh, like many previous philosophers, that ideas tend to shape history. Well, obviously that privileges philosophers, so they would want to embrace that viewpoint. Uh, Marx, of course, believed in ideas also, obviously, but he believed that the material world uh, shaped ideas. Essentially, Marxism, uh, at least a big aspect of it at its root, is a materialist interpretation of everything. Now, of course, there were materialists in the ancient world, but not really comprehensive, well-thought-out philosophical materialists. And that's what Marx was. Basically, he believed that the material conditions of society are the structure, and everything on top, religion, science, education, that was the superstructure. Mm-hmm. So, I think the best way to describe Marx in that sense is that he his was an attempt to uh, apply a materialist worldview to all areas of life and society. Now, there's another aspect of it. It's a little more difficult to understand, but you hear dialectics, and you those that have studied Plato know that the dialectical method's been around a long time. Dialectics in Plato is essentially the idea that we learn by sort of this ongoing conversation. You know, the Socrates and Plato, and they're talking... Um, uh, with very various people and what is truth, what is justice, what is mercy, and they kind of lead each other along and come to a conclusion. That's not quite the meaning of dialectics in Marx. And some thinkers, uh, like Lukács, believe that this really is the brilliant and fundamental point of Marxism, that you can't take anything in reality, I mean nothing in reality, and look at it by itself as it stands now. Everything is in flux. Mm -hmm. And therefore, it's all previous philosophy was impoverished in that it didn't recognize that. I'll use a metaphor here. It's like the film is going all the time and we can never stop it or pause it. Mm -hmm. All we can do is look at something as it's moving along, stand back, abstract from it where it is in the economic situation of the time. Uh, the religious situation, historical, all these other things, find out what influenced it and where it's going, and then we can turn back after this abstraction to the concrete and find out what it really is. Rather than uh, previous philosophers thinking that there were uh, maybe even eternal abstract norms, ideas, that aren't part of this just ongoing flux, but rather that there are these uh, transcendent or almost transcendent um, principles or norms uh, that are, uh, have, a sen- have a greater sense of permanence. Yeah, well, in this sense, Marx was profoundly anti-Platonic, uh, but he was also anti-Christian uh, because the, the biblical approach, the Christian approach, is that it is possible to look at things mm-hmm. and make an evaluation as they are based on the Word. Um, that's not Marx's view, and that's why, of course, uh, this applies particularly to ethics. Uh, Marx, this is why in Marxist systems and uh, Marxist countries, there's really no such thing as absolute justice, absolute right and wrong, because everything is in flux. And of course, there are things self-defeating about that, obviously. Well, he's not then the Marxist idea itself in flux. Of course, he didn't really either recognize that or want to talk about that. But uh, it was a, is a profound way of thinking such that uh, inherently Marxism must be progressivist. So there's this movement. So getting that's back... That's the bit that he picks up, you're saying that that's what he takes on at least from Hegel. From Hegel, that's right. That there is a sense in which there's a kind of necessity, there's a kind of constant movement, a constant progress, whether it's the 
thesis, antithesis, synthesis idea, but nonetheless, it's this constant sense of movement towards something that's necessary. That's right. Um, he, and he believed, he did believe, um, though inconsistently, in this determinist view of history. Because if you think about it, if you are a pure materialist, you have to be a determinist. Because it's not really our ideas that are shaping things, it's the material conditions that are shaping things. Well, of course, you also mentioned Darwin. There's a lot of this, uh, we look back now and see how odd it is. The 19th century, this, these organic views of everything. I mean, all, almost all the great thinkers are looking at things organically. So for uh, Darwin, similarly, you have this uh, cosmic and biological evolution. So you see here these parallel, um, these, these parallel views. In fact, in many ways, Marxism is essentially Darwinism as applied to societies. And Marx read Darwin. He did. Joyced in Darwin. That's right. And actually, it's, uh, he, he, wanted, uh, he, he, he wanted Darwin to endorse uh, his writings, and Darwin politely wrote back that he, he wouldn't do that. But yes, uh, there is this remarkable appreciation of of Marx for Darwin, and uh, it's understandable why that would be the case, because these two views are, are consistent. So, uh, help us with this then. Given that, uh, in a certain sense, Marx sees this kind of necessity, process, progress, this very organic view, this sense of constant flux, and you can only um, a sort of analyze moment by moment, and that would, uh, to a certain degree, help us understand why in communism, the party saw itself as infallible. There was nothing. Yes. Because, you know, uh, it's infallible for the moment. For the moment. But, but That's uh, right. It may change, uh, you know, later on. Right. The, 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 the truths that the party is articulating may change later on without right. contradiction. Right. But at the same time, uh, this is this idea of necessity. Marx um, spoke of philosophy. The purpose of philosophy says, unlike previous philosophies, which he said were concerned with analyzing reality and analyzing its structures and so forth. The purpose of philosophy, Marx thought, as I understand him, was to change. Well, he actually reality. said that. He That's right. It's to change. That's the right. He's on the ground. Now, you've already mentioned the fact that uh, he believed that the structures, the material structures of reality, social forms even within society were actually shape the ideas rather than mm -hmm, the other way around. Mm -hmm. So help us understand the, the relationship between this idea that on the one hand, history is right. this constant process of necessity and progress, and on the other hand, you, you're now uh, almost in, in, imposing, by, by instead of analyzing reality as it is, you are now um, seeking to change history with your in a sense, idea. Seems like a contradiction, and Marx had an answer for that. He's essentially that while we can't, as it were, change these iron laws of history, once we're in them, we can use our thought, because he did believe in mind, mm -hmm. uh, though it was, it was shaped by the material conditions. He didn't deny mind. Uh, we can, those of us who are aware of what's going on can hasten these things. And that's why the, the whole notion you hear today of being on the wrong side of history. That's, that's a very Marxist idea, is that Marx understood, he believed, he and his followers, these iron laws of history, and his responsibility, and the responsibility of his followers and Marxists, was to hasten this, this predestined uh, movement. And, and that's why in all Marxist societies, there's this constant war with what they call the counter-revolutionaries. Because if you think about it, if everything is in flux, this this motion is is destined to occur, and everybody that sort of gets in the way are getting in the way of inevitability. We've got to get these people out of the way, and that's where the persecution mm -hmm. uh, and opposition and tortures and, and murders and all these things come from. Right, they're standing in the way of, of progress, they're standing in the way of the realization of yeah. what, what history is trying to... That's right. Unconsciously trying to accomplish. But another key element that... Uh, in understanding Marxism, is Marx believed that the great changes of history are not the imposition from the outside, but great internal transformations. And this is conflict. He believed in everything. I mean, fundamentally, even in rocks and trees and in all reality, there are these internal contradictions. And certainly in man, in humanity, there are these contradictions. And because of that, in society itself. So, th so for, for Marx, 
conflict between what something is and what it is becoming. And that's the key. There's always the conflict between what we would say, the static and the dynamic. Mm-hmm. What is, that's why no society should try to be a static society. Mm-hmm. A society that says, oh, this is just, everything is just fine. He said, wrong, because you're getting in the way of what is becoming. Now you can understand why constantly Stalin was, who are the counter-revolutionaries? And when everything was at a standstill and seemed good, Stalin would say, we've got to find more enemies. Right. We've got to find more people to persecute because we've got to have this constant conflict. It has to be a kind of opposition to, to carry the, the progress forward. Yes. Unless you're defeating that opposition, you're not progressing. That's, that's exactly right. Now what's fascinating is how contra-biblical this is. The biblical calling is the movement toward peace and shalom. There is conflict, but that's because of human sinfulness. The, the substitute for that is not more conflict. It's by the grace of God and what Christ has done for us and the Spirit of God is the shalom. He's bringing the peace. He's getting rid, little by little, getting rid of the conflict. So where I'd like to, to uh, actually conclude um, uh, in a little while is to circle back around to that and contrast yes. the Marxist view of history with uh, the Christian view. So on the one hand, we've kind of got a secularized eschatology over here in Marx. Mm-hmm. And, then, and you can help us contrast his secularization, really, of uh, the kingdom of man. In a certain sense, he's yes. secularizing the kingdom of God with the kingdom of man. And we can, maybe we can finish there. Um, uh, and you can help us understand, uh, understand how that's happened. Because it's difficult to see how Marx in a sense, could have arisen with this idea of progress and a future and a building towards something without the Christians. That's right, that's right. But uh, most people, when they think about Marx, of course, they don't immediately, uh, because most are not philosophers, aren't no. thinking about Hegel and history right. and process and organic views of the state and all of this kind of thing. They think about money, they think about economics, right. they're thinking about um, equalization in society, they're thinking socialism. Right. So... Um, in, in our sort of second point here, why don't we talk, having discussed Marx's view of history, let help us now think about what sort of came to the fore, or at least seems seem to have come to the fore in Marxist thought in this whole era of economics as the, the economic aspect or the economic relation as the key to uh, history or historical change, progress. Um, and, uh, uh, and then we'll come on to how... It, it morphed from a purely economic yes. uh, f- focus to the focus that we're, we're, we're facing today. So why do we associate today Marxism with socialism um, and, and communism and, and help us understand what Marx was trying to say about money, about, um, about economic, not just money, liquid money, but economics uh, and economic forces within history. I think people hold that view because it's uh, the socialism and the economics and economic side is the most visible manifestation of Marxism. Mm-hmm. But if you'll read Marxists, you'll find out that they don't actually consider that to be the fundamental point of Marxism, though it is a consequence of Marxism. Because if you think about it, if all of life is at root material conditions, both individually and socially, the goal of both the individual, whether he or she knows it or not, and society is to equalize material conditions. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this is where the whole war on uh, inequality comes from. So the goal has to be the conflict. And by the way, he would, Marx began his analysis, economic analysis, with uh, the ancient world, everybody around caves, the ancient tribes, their economic situation. And then later on, the um, the world empires and their economic situation, and the medieval economic situation. Then he comes down to his own time to the Industrial Revolution, and it stopped there because he died then. He didn't see the Information Revolution. But he had an explanation for these, that these, these types of economic arrangements themselves came about as a result of conflict in society. Now, in his own time, the big conflict, this was during the, remember, in, particularly in Britain, well, the U.S. and other places in Europe was between, uh, in, in French language, the bourgeoisie, the owners of the means of production. And we would say generally the wealthy, the employers, we would say, and then the proletariat, the factory workers, the wage slaves, and so on. Well, now That's he, the most familiar aspect of Marxism. That is. People, isn't it? The, the bourgeoisie, the proletariat. That's the right. All the conflict that you've talked about. That's right. Between them, 
and then the whole notion of wage labor and so on and so forth. So I'm packed out a bit. Now, yeah, I'll get to that. But the interesting thing to understand, remembering what I said a few minutes ago, uh, because of Marx's view of society, Marx was not opposed to capitalism. In fact, he asserted that capitalism was absolutely necessary uh, in this iron law as a process through which society, humanity, must go before it gets to his own time. So he, he, he wasn't opposed to the capitalism of, of 200 years before. He was only opposed to the capitalism of his own time. So for him, the next great conflict was then between this proletariat and the bourgeoisie, because if you think about it, it was creating material conditions in society in which some people were not gaining the benefit of everything in society. In some ways, Mark really, Marx, uh, prefer, though he wouldn't like to return to, he really liked this original and more ego, older, ancient egalitarian idea when the tribes were just foraging and everybody shared everything. Now, he was smart enough to know we couldn't go back to that, but that element of it he saw as something that could and should happen in the future. Men were happier. Why? Because the fundamental thing of life is the material conditions, transportation and, and, and health, and we would say today health care and, and food and comforts and all that. That should all be equalized and, in fact, will be equalized. So for How him... How do you justify the notion that that was the way things should be? I mean, why should things be equal? Why should material conditions be equalized? Well, for, for his, I mean, on his own epistemic premise, the answer to that question is he couldn't. I mean, because he didn't believe in an absolute right and wrong. So that's, that's one of the great problems with Marxism. And by the way, I would say also all non-Christian thought. It's self-refuting. But for him, the answer that he, he would say is that because uh, material conditions are the, uh, the, the center or I should say that's the wrong metaphor. It's the foundation, the, the superstructure of all of life. Life is inevitably pointing to a time when everyone will share all natural resources and that man himself will share in, all men will share in everything because we're entitled as man to, and it's interesting, you're talking earlier about Christian, he had a secular view of dominion. So man's a product of this world, but then he turns around because of mind and who he is and his evolutionary development and can impose his will on earth. But for him, imposing his will on earth is creating this equal condition where all humanity can share equally in all these resources. Uh, now, he didn't say that was just desirable. He thought that that was inevitable. Mm -hmm. And that's and what Mark... his sort of notion of, the, well, at least when he uh, rarely spoke about what this future condition would look like, it was... Uh, sort of hunting and fishing and animal yes. history and literary criticism in the evening and everybody uh, sort of living this uh, idealistic kind of utopian life. We'll come back to the concept of utopia. But... No, he was inherently in many ways anti-technological because of that, because that's where his view of alienation comes. Man is alienated from the fruits of his labor. So at that time he goes into the factory and he makes the same uh, it wouldn't be an automobile at the time. He's making something. He's doing the same thing. It's repetitive. He's alienated from his true condition. Whereas in the future, you know, you basically will be able to enjoy all the fruits of your labor because everyone is sharing in the fruits collectively of everybody's labor. Of course, that's just a totally romantic and false view of human nature. But that's where he got this idea of what we would the socialism or, or economic egalitarianism. And, uh, and you're saying that he, he used this uh, struggle, this, this, this economic conflict, this conflict over material things, as the way in which he interpreted all of history's movements, history's yes. periods, is that what yes. you're saying? That he, he interprets the ancient world, the medieval world, and the modern world in view of this conflict it, of material positions. It's all economic conflict, it, and this is what's interesting. Uh, like he would say, the Reformation, um, philosophical, all of these arguments, his, his view is extremely reductionistic. Right. All of this, he says, when you basically scratch it and you get down to the bottom, it's all about economics. That's right. just silly, but that's what he held. So, in, uh, so he's, he's, he's taking almost solely the, the economic aspect of life. Absolutizing it. And he's absolutizing yes. it. Yes. And he's saying this uh, is the key to understanding the totality of reality. That's right. Struggle for material uh, condition. That's right. For material. So is that uh, is that how uh, um, uh, in terms of how he viewed the family then 
as we uh, will make another transition in just a moment, but, but as, a sort of in, as we introduce that thought and that theme um, in the way in which Marxism has morphed today, because, of course, you know, most people in our society today who would um, be uh, uh, socialists or um, uh, uh, people who are thinking in fairly revolutionary terms about the family and talking about egalitarianism and equalitarianism and all of these things tend not to talk so much about this old economic aspect um, as a sort of an entire view of history. Uh, there's, there's elements of it, but it's clearly morphed. Now, Marx seemed to hold the Christian idea of the family um, uh, or of Christian marriage as at least one of the roots or one of the root causes of this material inequality that somehow this was the foundation of the idea of the bourgeoisie family. That's right. Private property. That's right. So forth. Uh, help us understand that a little bit, uh, his view of um, marriage, family, and you said he's interpreting everything economically, so presumably that would include sexuality and sexual relationships. Uh, absolutely. What we call the traditional family, or more accurately the the theistic, the, the, the biblical view of the family, he would say would have developed as a result of particular economic conditions of men being stronger, of taking, and this is more elaborate, but essentially taking women and having children for particular economic purposes. So at the root of all of this is an economic concern. He would even say that that's true of love. At the root of love, it's a sadly reductionistic thing. The writer who did most on that was his uh, collaborator, Engels, who actually wrote a a book on this very topic about the family, the, the traditional family, is being inherently exploitative. Mm -hmm. And that's why in Marxist societies, divorce was always easy. There was a strong stress on sexual egalitarianism. The whole notion of the emancipation of women in this, in the secular sense, actually began in Marxism. Uh, now, Plato had ideas, but they were a different kind of emancipation. Uh, certainly in the last 200 years, this is where this notion came from, because the the family is an exploitative institution. It's designed to keep women in submission and to keep children in submission and to create a particular kind of, of uh, economic hegemony, if we may say, within the family. Well, and, and you extend that out over society, and it's almost in some way as though the factory owner is the father of the large, of the large family of employees. Mm -hmm. So... Um, there was a strongly anti-family element in any, anywhere that Marxist societies, all of them, all communist societies would attempt to undermine, destroy the family. So in terms of uh, the, the root then of social order and the organizing principle for society, whereas in, whereas in the Christian view, the family is God's first creational institution. You've got uh, uh, the, the beginning right there at the beginning, you've got marriage and the establishment, God's establishment of the family. Um, where does Marx shift the primary organizing principle? I mean, if all the responsibilities that the family takes on um, in care for children, uh, in providing, uh, the being the basic uh, uh, platform, the basic um, grounding for education, for um, uh, human well-being, or what you might call welfare, uh, Marx then ship must shift that somewhere. Where does he, where does he shift the okay, responsibilities and, and, the family takes on in the, Christian society? In the 19th century, he shifts it squarely to the workers or to the proletariat. Now, but when Lenin gets a hold of this, then it's the party. And it becomes the, 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 the great revolutionaries whose goal is to whip up uh, the proletariat because they need some sort of leader, which is actually you know, self-contradictory if there's the iron laws of history. But anyway, so essentially these workers that have been exploited, and this is a key element, we'll get to cultural Marxism, I believe, in a minute, but this is the roots of this idea of the oppressed. The, in, in Marxism, the very first oppressed class of the time, now he would speak of the oppressed classes earlier, but in his own time, the, the root oppressed class is this proletariat, these, these workers. So they become, for him, the engine of society. You asked a great question, whereas in the biblical approach, the family is, humanly speaking, the engine of society. In Marx, it's the, the workers, and then later it becomes the party and then the revolutionary elite in the early 20th century. They become the engine of society. Everything else 
is incidental to them because little by little, their goal is to take back this means of production. Now you're thinking about this, but why? Because remember for Marx, everything is economic. So when they take control of the means of production, then they themselves are are able to create this world where all economic conditions can be equal. That's the whole goal, is this sort of, the, the unity. It really is a sort of, a goal, a goal of a unity, but a very secular unity. Mm-hmm. Now, when, when most of us think of Marxism, and we think about this shift that you're talking about to the workers, um, the, these workers for Marx seem to be, he doesn't uh, seem to have a great deal of care for the individual worker himself. That's right. But it's more of an abstract idea of this proletariat, this class, this group who are allegedly oppressed. Um, and it seems that almost the responsibility uh, of the workers is embodied or at least um, taken on by the state. So what role, I mean, if you look at Marxist societies, when we look at, you know, communist societies, the institution that seems emphasized above everything else is the state. Now, as I understand it, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, um, Marx saw an important role for the state, but he saw the state eventually disappearing. That's something right. that would eventually no longer be needed. Nonetheless, there seems to be, in, in uh, all forms of Marxist thought, and certainly as we see it expressed in the Marxist-oriented countries even today, the great emphasis is on the state. Uh, is this something he picks up from Hegel? Because Hegel sort of saw the state as the uh, almost the highest idea of man, the embodiment of the divine, the sort of world spirit embodied in the state. How does Marx see that differently? Why do we see such an emphasis on the state yeah. as accomplishing this equalization? Yeah, good question. I don't think in that sense there's so much reliance on Hegel as it is a recognition that the proletariat alone need an ally in order to accomplish their hegemony. So, and that's why for him, Marx, the state is always a transitional mm-hmm. uh, institution. For him, the state is only here during this time of transition because the proletariat captures the state and in capturing the state, it captures the economic conditions and therefore the culture. I believe Marx would have said if it were possible for the proletariat to actually impose its uh, economic will, its will, on society without the state, he probably theoretically would have said that would be okay. But of course, that's not possible. Didn't he even think that, that, that this would likely come about democratically? Marx himself, didn't he think that it would all Oh, yes. I mean, he, he, well, he worked, yes, he, 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 and he would have worked toward that end. It's more when you get closer to Lenin and those that they recognize that realistically, not this working. is not going to happen. It's just not going to. And there are all sorts of setbacks because of that. This notion of the universal brotherhood of the proletariat. When basically, when, when war times come, it's amazingly how nationalistic the proletariat and separate companies can, countries rather, can, can get. But so for, for them, and even for Lenin, the state is this mighty smashing tool to help the proletariat accomplish what it's predestined. There's another biblical uh, allusion to. Um, so, yeah, that's essentially uh, yeah. Marx's view of the state. Yeah. So we've seen history foundational Marxist view of history. We've thought about then the, um, uh, the, the, the Marxist view of economics that comes to the fore and, and how that relates to uh, the state and uh, the, the family. Um, and you mentioned transitions, points of transition, and the sense that people like Lenin had that the that Marx formulation in itself was not enough. It was, it was inadequate and needed more. Now, I want to come to this, 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 this critical transition to bring us to where we are today now right. in this, this last segment. Um, with, the, with the Russian Revolution um, and the, the sort of sense that there was in Europe that, that, that this was the moment, this was the moment for the, the, the proletariat to throw off the ruling class, the bourgeoisie, this was going to be revolution throughout Europe. Right. Uh, this was going to change everything. Um, right. There was going to be, uh, um, and perhaps you can comment uh, in this on, on, on the role of, of, of socialism in all of this as a derivative, at least, of Marxist thought. Yes. But that this, this was going to bring about uh, a revolution that would, would sweep all the workers up into it. Um, and there was tremendous disappointment uh, after the First World War. 
um, and on into the uh, middle of the 20th century mm -hmm. that this didn't this didn't happen that right the, that what had happened in in Russia uh, did not happen in the what we might call the Western uh, uh, Christianized yes. nations and there were Marxist intellectuals who um, really began to try and analyze and think about why has uh, Marxism not conquered? Why has this, this supposed irresistible direction for history, uh, uh, this economic transformation of material conditions, not happened? And um, they began to you know, think through um, why that was and, and, and why maybe politically and just in terms of the activity of uh, politics, party and state, that this was actually insufficient and that uh, this economic uh, material transformation wasn't going to come about in the way that Marx himself had thought. Now, we come to this concept of, well, some call it the new left. So the Oxford philosopher Roger Scruton. Right, um, the new left, yes. Talks about the new left. Yeah. Other people speak about cultural Marxism. And then you get this, this uh, often this immediate reaction that anybody who talks about cultural Marxism is a fascist. Uh, <laughs> because apparently... Um, there were the, 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 some of the Nazi critics of the communists uh, talked of cultural Marxism or whatever. Yes. Um, nonetheless, whether we call it the new left or progressivism or cultural Marxism, culture being downstream of politics, mm -hmm. help us to, and, and, and uh, I mean, our listeners are going to be, our, our, and viewers are going to be very, very interested in how, who may find all of this discussion about Marxism and Marx himself quite abstract, seemingly distant. But what does it have to do with us? Yeah, right. What does it have to do with us today? Right. What does it have to do with what we're seeing in our own society now? What does it have to do with culture today and what's confronting Christians in education, in political life, uh, in the whole view of human sexuality and the family? Help us understand how this very powerful movement has morphed and shifted. Maybe help us uh, with some of the key figures in that. I know this is a, a big topic, but you can cover it briefly. That was like 17 questions, and we'll, uh, we'll try to get uh, well, a few. Well, well it's, we're, we're, we're trying to storyboard <laughs> Of course, this. of course. How do we storyboard this for, the, for, yeah. for our viewers so that they see you know, Marx and the transition today so that this is not some sort of distant, oh, he was a philosopher from the 19th right. century, not really relevant today. How is this new left progressivism or cultural Marxism related to Marx himself, what happened and, and why did they think the way they did about the failure of, of, of the Marxist or the socialist revolution? And, and really, the, was, is, that's the, the beginnings of cultural Marxism, which is with us today in the West, much more than original or classical Marxism as well. So it sort of began, maybe even with Trotsky, but certainly with the Italian uh, communist uh, Marxist Antonio Gramsci, uh, who actually was in the Soviet Union, um, in, in the 20s, spent some time there. And then you think about the Hungarian, Hungarian Lukács and then the critical school uh, thinkers, um, Eric Fromm and um, oh, just various others, uh, Marcuse and so on. So, I mean, though they had differences, basically, Joe, and this is critical to understand, they understood in the West this economic version of Marxism was most likely not going to work. You weren't going to have the case as you did in 1915, 16, 17, in Russia, which became the Soviet Union, of the workers even led by the Revolutionary League, just rising up um, because uh, of, of the czar and how badly they were treated. Because, frankly, because of the free market, most places in the West, people were they're okay with their jobs. I mean, they you know everybody doesn't like their boss, right? But it wasn't that. So if they were going to alter society. They had to think of a different way to alter society. Well, for them, that way was to use Western ideas of equality, equality and uh, freedom and justice, and sort of rethink and retool these redefine things. Them? Redefine and retool them. I guess the best way to begin talking about that is to understand that for the, for the cultural Marxists, uh, well, let's go back. So for the economic or classic uh, Marxist, man's real uh, enemy is economic exploitation. For the cultural Marxist, the problem is that every human uh, has um, 
a, a reality and a goodness and a, a good life that he could or should live, but um, these there are external institutions oppressing him, and mostly those institutions, though it is the economy, but generally it would be the church and the family mm-hmm. or things related to them. So for people like uh, Lukács and so on, the real issue for them is not economic liberation, though that is a sliver of it. They didn't get rid of, they sort of supplemented um, classical Marxism. But as Lukács wrote a book uh, on the very topic, human liberation, the individual himself must be liberated from culture. Now, if you think about it, that's also an older idea. Rousseau held that idea. Man is born free, but everywhere in chains. What are the chains? Well, these social conventions. So the goal of these cultural Marxists is to create a a society that breaks down all of these barriers to the true self. The true self might be um, uh, exhibitionist, it might be um, artistic, it might be homosexual, uh, it might be whatever. But the problem is we have this overlying authorities that are keeping us in check. And this, by the way, is where this whole notion, you, you, you may have noticed today this, this lust for the word authentic. Mm-hmm. We love so-and-so or she because this is an authentic person. And, and don't live an inauthentic life. Well, basic, basically, if you conform to these cultural norms, you're not living according to the way you should have life. So you ought to be able, and, and the picture here is one of basically the every individual is an artist, and we ought to paint our own reality on the beautiful canvas of life. So we reinvent our own reality, and that's essentially what... freedom of the human personality to really create reality as they see fit. That's right. Now think about it for a minute. Whereas the role of the state in classical Marxism is to empower the proletariat to crush the bourgeoisie, the state in cultural Marxism is essentially to empower all of these oppressed individuals to destroy the family and the church and other similar or related institutions. Uh, The real goal of these cultural Marxism is the leveling of virtually all hierarchies. I mean, obviously, the state is a hierarchy that can't be leveled, certainly now, because it's the great club to beat everybody down. But this is where the whole notion of men leading families, of, of, of elders or pastors leading churches, of uh, employers leading, uh, leading companies. Of, uh, of, and it's true also of civilizations, of Western civilization, uh, and all that it's accomplished being uh, surpassing other um, Asian or African or various other civilizations. That all has to be swept aside mm-hmm. because the important thing is for the individual to be able to paint his reality on society. Well, so when you look today at um, the women's liberation movement, and oh, by the way, every liberation movement as such of the 20th century, everyone has as its roots, at its roots, explicitly or implicitly, cultural Marxism. Mm -hmm. Women's liberation, uh, racial liberation, children's liberation, homosexual liberation, because think about what's going on here. Essentially, we should have the freedom to express ourselves, and we need to be liberated from these institutions, uh, from, of course, the authority of the Bible. Uh, some would even say of natural law, however that's interpreted. All of these, of even reason, reason, however it's defined, all of these cultural impositions that are keeping us from being what we are. This, of course, brings up inherent contradictions. I mean, what if one person's... Uh, descri- uh, pushing out and, and describing and living out, exhibiting his own reality conflicts with another. Well, they don't really talk much about that. Uh, and that's why this whole conflict of free speech is just silly. But the important thing is creating the utopian society in which the individual can be his true self. And for the cultural Marxists, the great problem of life is that we are alienated from our true selves. Marx would have said it's the economic situation that keeps us in, working in the factories, the repetitive situation. That keeps us from, uh, you know, like you said, going out and foraging and doing everything fun every day and fishing and all that stuff. Well, you, to, to, the, to the cultural Marxists, uh, we are just held in check by these institutions so that we can't reflect our true selves. 
-hmm. in the end, and I'll take the next step. What uh, so it's not, but but I would say it's not just then the the culture that becomes the oppressor, uh, where they're really headed for is creation itself that is the oppressor. So all creational structures create because think about it. If I have in my imagination a view of reality that is at variance with these, what are accepted to be, what are in fact, creational structures, then the creational structures must go. That really, that is the bottom line for a lot of the transgenderism today. Mm -hmm. And the sex reassignment surgery that now has been changed. New language, of course, new language, gender affirmation Mm -hmm. surgery. Because I have the right Mm -hmm. to affirm. The fact that I am born with male or female sexual organs is an imposition on my imagination and free and free creation of the self now that idea is there in marx himself it is oh it is man recreating himself through work yes yes clearly that notion is there i think what the cultural marxists have done though is just sort of elevated it and highlighted it particularly those in the last 20 or 30 years a profoundly gnostic view that man himself becomes the creator Another example of the secularization of, in, in the biblical view, man is uh, creational underneath, under God's authority. Yes, there's the creative aspect of man. But of course, not believing in God anymore, all the Marxists say that man actually becomes the creator. And mm-hmm. it's creation ex nihilo. Mm-hmm. Well, that's exactly now in a cultural situation what man is supposed to be. Man can, by his voice, say, a male can say, I am female. Mm-hmm. And it is done. And it is very good. Right. And, and the, this whole idea of inclusion and so forth means that we're not really allowed to criticize. So one, um, uh, if in the uh, cultural, cultural Marxist view, one must be allowed to real, that the freedom of, of the human personality to create themselves, to, to create their own identity, um, that ironically... <laughs> actually tries to, to, to shut down a certain type of struggle uh, because you're now not allowed to... It get, gets to the point where you can't criticize, you can't judge, you cannot... Uh, uh, and so you're, they're constantly... You talked about earlier Marx, uh, the Marxist society is looking for more enemies. You see this constant multiplication of um, oppressed people... That's right. ...oppressed classes in our society today of this victim mentality and it becomes so widespread that you actually get to the point where no form of criticism of anybody's uh, uh, choice self-identification is allowed uh, which ironically uh, um, would begin to eliminate the notion of struggle that's right and as that uh, the the necessity of multiplying all of these oppressed classes is always trying to find a new victim that's being victimized in the society that's right. to keep that struggle going. Yeah, you, you, as you pointed out, self-contradictions everywhere in this. But in a way, I must say, the, the, the lust to, to that, even that kind of self-contradiction, is a lust for chaos, mm-hmm. out of which this beautiful Prometheus is, is going to come. The, the uh, Australian scholar Kenneth Minogue called it, I'll never forget this, it's great language, the, how do they call it, the oppression liberation nexus. Mm-hmm. That is, we constantly must have an oppressed class. And, um, and if there isn't one, we have to invent one. Um, what's happening now, and I won't talk long about this, but we t- we're talking about human, the hum- humanity itself is oppressed, and this is where transhumanism. Mm-hmm. Man must, must move beyond his humanity in this Gnostic way and be joined to machines more and more. And the, mm-hmm. so, um, creations of his own technology. Creations, that's right. So yeah. that he's actually, almost in a literal sense, recreating himself by yes. merging with his own technology. That's the sort of post-human, transhuman idea right. you're saying is rooted in a Marxist thought. It is. It really is. And um, so when, when we look at it, what's really remarkable, Joe, is when you look at the elite, leftist elite vision of our time, it is shot through everywhere with cultural Marxism. And I don't mean only consciously. I'm convinced that in many cases... It's not that there's this vast conspiracy of some leftists in, in, in an underground bunker somewhere sort of reading Marcuse. Or, but nonetheless, 
professors have imbibed this and they've influenced others, the cultural influencers on TV, on movies, on the web, kind of imbibe these uh, these notions, and it becomes an invisible ideology mm-hmm. uh, to to stand up against the idea that men and for example, to stand up against the idea that men and women are are equal in all respects is like well, that's to question reality. Mm-hmm. I mean, we all know that that is a, an older and false idea. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the notion that that could even be valid is silly, and that's why. And one reason that it's all shouted down. I think you and I were mentioning this in the car the other day. You understand that for cultural Marxists, the reason that they must squelch free speech is they because they believe that speech has sort of creative ex nihilo power, that out of nothing, my speech creates reality. Social construction. And therefore, somebody whose speech opposes what we consider to be the right speech has to be shut out because we don't want them to be able to create a reality that's contrary to ours. So it's almost... um a magical aspect. It is. Almost to that, as though the, it word, is. the magic word, if you get the words right, if you have the right news speak, if you That's have right. The right, use the right language, you, through using that language and reinforcing that language everywhere, you will create a new reality. Yeah, and, and they will even say, the Marxist you were, Scruton makes this point very well in his book, This is Why Culture, well, even before the earlier Marxists, but cultural Marxists in particular really believe in employing language. The transformation of language is absolutely essential because that shapes how people think. And this is where we get the changed meaning of of gender. Mm -hmm. Uh, Historically, it's not necessarily a bad word at all, but the problem is it's been redefined and commandeered to mean, well, we don't use sex. That has the old outmoded idea of a male and a female. The binary idea, idea, and of course the sexual act between them. But gender is something that, it's a social construction. Mm -hmm. And therefore, I was mentioning to the students the other day, I heard about a couple years ago, Facebook Facebook gave you the opportunity of 57 genders. And then one of the students raised his hand and said, no, I think it's up to 75 now. Mm -hmm. Um, So, And frankly, as I wrote somewhere recently, if you think about it, why shouldn't actually that number be the number of every living person in the world? Because, frankly, every person should be able to define his own mm-hmm. or her own. Here I am using that old binary language. Sorry. Uh, that person's gender um, in contradistinction to what any other person would say. So, um, th- I mean, that's just one example. We see it, of course, in the so-called pro-choice movement movement, and so on. Um, giving acronyms to, to various groups, LGBT, LGBT community. That's to sort of legitimize this as a, is this, is, this is actual one community. We have the Christian community, and we have the Democratic or Republican community, and oh, by the way, we also, and all of them should be treated equally and very fairly and so on. It's remarkable how language is commandeered. Mm-hmm. Cultural Marxists have used it to accomplish their agenda. Mm-hmm. So, in conclusion, as we wrap this up in a, in a, in a fourth segment of discussion here then. Um, we've, we've seen the historical, we've seen the uh, economic uh, aspect. We've looked now at the, the, the way it shifted to a kind of cultural Marxism. And a number of sort of biblical themes have emerged. And you've highlighted some of them. I mean, one that immediately comes to mind, of course, is um, the temptation to our first parents in the Garden of God was, you will be as gods. Right. Knowing or determining for yourself good and evil, you know, right from wrong, truth from false. Mm-hmm. This was at least the force of the temptation that yes. you can be as God. That's right. Now, few would argue that this, this, this worldview, this Marxist worldview in its original and then in its um, cultural formation as you've described it to us it's sort of uh, um, morphing into right. more cultural emphasis is incredibly powerful it's incredibly influential uh, we've mentioned uh, in fact that there's almost like a there's a dominion mandate at work yes here, very much uh, within um, Marxist uh, thought uh, whether it be economic or cultural so when we look at the, the, the big picture here, uh, there's a certain sense in which, as you look at a Marxism, you, you can see that it is taking essentially biblical themes, themes like uh, uh, equality, 
That's that right. Made, we're equally made in God's image. Justice. Not in the mathematical sense, mm-hmm, but in the, mm-hmm. you, we're, we're, we're made in God's image. The idea of justice and the, right. of the concept of social justice, the idea of liberation, of being That's free. Right. You know, you've That's got right. The great theme of, of the Old Testament being, and in That's fact, right. into the New Testament is liberation Absolutely. from slavery. Um, yep. You mentioned um, women's liberation and the various uh, movements that have sought liberation through a Marxist paradigm. And then almost uh, as we look at the Bible and its idea of the future that you are moving, progress is being made in history in terms of the kingdom of God, and you're moving towards fulfillment uh, in history. A kind mm-hmm. of es- there, that, that is what we would call in theologians would call eschatology. That's right. Yes. There seems to be a secularization of a Christian eschatology here and of Christian ideas that Marx really couldn't have stumbled on, Marxism couldn't have arisen in a certain sense without Christianity, without the the, the reality of a creation order and a Christian world and life view. And here you have almost a, a, a counterfeiting, a secularizing. So to help us with two things, Andrew, as we wrap this up, help us understand in what ways this um, secularization of very distinctly biblical themes has taken place. And perhaps illustrate it for us uh, by showing how, I mean, you and I would certainly uh, agree that uh, the what we might call a first wave feminism that was looking for greater freedom was actually right. Yes. That, uh, that there was um, uh, a certain amount of oppression That's right. of uh, women and and that a, a, and that truly Christian reform, truly Christian reform, would want to see some of those things that's right realized in our society. And in fact, a number of them were Christians actually at the time. Indeed. I mean, yeah, a hundred years ago or so. Yes. yes. And, and if you look at you know great evangelicals in Britain like William Wilberforce were concerned with the absolute of, of, of slavery. slavery. Yes. So as we distinguish a Christian view of freedom, uh, liberation justice and so forth, help us see the, how Marx has secularized that and how might we begin to make the right distinctions as Christians of what actually here is, it, it is, is a truly Christian vision of justice and liberation yes. and where are we in fact instead importing a radical secularization, a Marxist vision into the Christian view and trying to synthesize them as we see in our culture. Well, you've done such a, that question was an answer in itself. That was beautifully put, Joe. You mentioned a number of those ways. There's the, there's essentially the secularization of a Christian worldview. So I think Marx intuitively understood, though he would not have used this language, that Christianity is an entire world and life view. It's a life system. He knew that because he, he, he was strongly opposed to not just one sliver of the society around him. But this whole society, in his view, had been enslaved and corrupted by a way of thinking rooted in Christianity. So this is something I sort of advised years ago, and it's good to bring up now. Only uh, comprehensive worldviews can defeat other comprehensive worldviews. And I think Marx intuitively knew that. Certainly the cultural Marxists too. Uh, it's not enough to, to, in the realm of thinking, to defeat Christianity by saying Jesus didn't rise from the dead. Of course, according to Paul, that would. But I mean, as we step backwards, there, there's an entire range of Christian beliefs in economics and in art and in science and music and literature. There has to, on all of these areas, if you're going to eventually root out all of Christianity, it has to be rooted out in a comprehensive way. Well, so, Marx, so Marxism has eventually a view of what we would call creation. Man came about, of course, in a Darwinian way. And then there's the Marxist view of the fall, which is man's fall from this original sort of uh, Rousseauian state of nature, the fall into private property. Alienation. Alienation, that's right. And then, of course, then we come to a... So what is the Marxist soteriology, theologically? That's salvation doctrine. The salvation comes by man's understanding of these iron laws of nature, so led by the elite. And then, as you said, there's a Marxist eschatology, which is these laws that are this predestination that are pressing forward. As people have pointed out, we have also, a, as it were, a, a Marxist patristics. Marx himself and the writings of Marx and Engels are the writings of the church fathers. And so we could just go on and on having a, and there's a Marxist anthropology, of course. 
What is man himself? Nothing but blood and bone, just a material being. So that's just why it's rightly been said that, that Marxism is the most comprehensive yeah. philosophy, certainly of the 19th and the 20th centuries. So having said that, I want to get to your second question, which is vital. So here we've got social justice warriors, um, let's say the Christian version of them, and there are a lot of them, who think that they're doing the Lord a service by basically um, embracing uh, Marxism and putting on a Christian costume, saying this is what the Lord would want. What's lacking in all of them is a radical critique based on the written Word of God. Mm -hmm. The only place that we can come up with the meaning of justice and liberty and freedom and liberation and beauty and goodness and equality and all of those things is by God's revelation. That revelation occurs in creational norms mm -hmm. which are woven into the very structure in the un of the universe. And the book of Genesis says that, by the way. We just don't make those up. Mm -hmm. We read about them because these are mutually reinforcing, this creation and this word. And allowing the Word of God, God's moral law, to determine what these things are. Now here's the problem. As the church has um, departed from a serious interaction with all of the Word of God, mm -hmm. what has not happened is that it's just drifted off and not thought about God. And that's not really what's happened. What's happened is that there's no real vacuum. <laughs> When you, what I'm asserting is that among these young people and some older ones too, including pastors, when you get rid of a full reading of the Word mm -hmm. and allowing the Word of God in all in the Old and New Testaments to determine what these things are, you don't just not address them. You allow alien ideas to come in and replace them. Mm -hmm. And then you'll read John 3.16 as though it's authoritative, but you don't want to read Exodus 20 mm -hmm. as authoritative. Or you'll read Psalm 23 as authoritative, but won't read Genesis 1 and 2. Psalm 119. Oh, Psalm 119, exactly, <laughs> particularly Psalm 119 and, yeah, and, and various other texts. So this is why nothing short of a return to the authority of the Word of God in its totality, nothing short of that will be able to combat this Christian version of social Marxism, cultural Marxism. Mm -hmm. And the, the cultural force then, the, in a sense, the certain sense, the cultural power of Marxism I think is derived from the fact that it seeks to copy Christianity. That's right. A, a, a cultural mandate. That's right. A dominion mandate to, to That's see right. progress, to That's see right. development, to see uh, predestination, to, to see a kingdom for you. For Marx, it's a kind of utopia. It is. That's I mean, right. It's not the kingdom of God, but That's it's a right. man-made utopia. And it's a tragedy that Christians, in our abandonment of the word of God, uh, that we... Uh, and, and the mandate to apply that word comprehensively, as you've said, to the totality of life, we end up surrendering culture. That's right. To cultural Marxism. That's right. And, and a and a and a bastardized a aping of Christianity. I mean, even if you ape the themes of Christianity, you you are granted tremendous cultural force because yes, beca because even a distorted version. Uh, of its key themes has power. It does. It's the word of God. Absolutely, so yes. You're saying, as I understand it, that if we actually w were to return to a consistently scriptural view uh, and a comprehensive vision, what would that do for our cultural impact as Christians? I mean, a, a, a small, relatively small minority of, of, of radical elites have turned Western culture on its head yes. with, a, with a secularized version of Christianity. What could happen if Christians actually started to be obedient to this, to, yeah. to God's word, and rather than seeking an artificial man-imposed utopia, sought the kingdom of God, as Jesus commanded us, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And that's called the quintessential rhetorical question. The answer was beautifully put into that question. Beautiful. So if, if cultural Marxists, without the power of the Spirit, can, in embracing and championing this comprehensive vision, this secular version of a Christian worldview, what could the actual Christian worldview do yes. under the power of the Spirit? I think one of the real problems, and Marx even understood this in Nietzsche, this is of the time, the 19th century, Christianity had become so ethereal and so otherworldly 
And that's why Mark said it was the opiate religion and he meant Christianity. It was the opiate of the people. He was wrong about that, of course. But I understand why he said that about many Christians at the time. Mm -hmm. Christianity was basically about getting saved and going to heaven. And he says, well, I've got something better than that. I have a full worldview that will address these issues of people that are suffering and are going through difficult times and don't have as much as their neighbor. Mm -hmm. His answer, of course, and the answer of the cultural Marxist is wrong, disastrously wrong. But it is an answer. That's the key. And Christians don't have answers to these things because they have dualized life. They have basically put everything up in the future. And thank God we have a glorious future. But put everything up in the future. And they have marginalized this present world. The biblical worldview is exactly that. Think about it. It's a worldview. Mm-hmm. We don't call it a heaven view. Right. Now, heaven is going to be there on earth, I believe, um, New heavens and new earth when we get here. But the whole point of the Bible is to tell man, the godly man and woman, surrendered to Jesus Christ, trusting in Him, how to live out this life. And not just as individuals, but as families and as churches, applying the faith in education and music and literature and art and politics, architecture, all of these areas of life. Because that's really what God is doing in the world. What God is doing is using man through his quintessential man, the true redeeming dominion man, Jesus Christ, to whom we're united by faith, to roll back these effects of sin. Uh, Never perfectly until the consummate kingdom, but nonetheless gradually by the application of his word under the power of the Spirit. Mm -hmm. Which is another way of saying God is very interested in this world. Mm -hmm. He's very interested in what architecture looks like. He's very interested in what art looks like. I mean, this is his beautiful creation, and it's a good thing. I think it was Al Walters or somebody that said, uh, how did he say it was beautiful? When man fell, (laughs) God didn't say, well, I'm going to scrap this world and throw it in the garbage can. Mm -hmm. He said, no, I love it. It's so beautiful. It's marred. But I'm not going to throw it away and start again. I'm going to redeem it. And so the Christian approach is, though God through his Son is the Redeemer, and nonetheless cooperate with him under his authority, and working out the implications of redemption. Essentially, just from what you said, what Marxism and cultural Marxism are, are secular versions of redemption. This world, they have defined creation, creation, fall, redemption. They have defined creation in a particular way, in a Darwinian way, the fall in a particular way. Mm -hmm. They define, therefore, redemption and glorification and their consummate kingdom in a particular way. I will close in my comments, Joe, by saying... This um, comprehensive worldview cannot be defeated by three sermonic points and a sad story in a poem. The pastor who says, I'm going to get up on Sunday, preach a nice message about how we need to trust Jesus and pray and um, go out and live your life, basically, as long as you do no really bad things, and then at the end you'll go to heaven. That is a formula for disaster, even if what he's saying is the truth as far as it goes, as far as it goes. Because God's, God's work in the world today is not simply saving one here, saving one there, preparing to take them to heaven. That view is more Gnostic than Christian. I'm not saying people that hold it are Gnostics. I'm saying that view is more Gnostic than Christian. The Christian view is that the Word of God is designed to govern all of life because God and His Son is redeeming all of life. And since Marxism is really only the parasite, the host has to actually be obedient to God. Uh, And as we're faithful to God, what you're talking about can actually be realized in the life of the church. Yes. Dr. Sandlin, thank you very much for being with us. Dr. Boot. We're most grateful. Yep. See you soon. Yep. Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the podcast for Cultural Reformation brought to you by the Ezra Institute for Contemporary Christianity. Please take a moment to like, share, and rate the podcast on social media and your favorite listening platform. For more resources, please visit www.ezrainstitute.ca.